And I decided to give up football for my family because I knew that, okay, at the end of the day, it would be more impactful and I could make a difference, you know, being an optometrist versus, you know, making it to the league. Welcome to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. everybody and welcome back to creative ops a podcast for creative people this is officially episode 100 i took the month of june off without uh, a real announcement because i wasn't planning on taking the whole month off it just kind of (laughs) just kind of turned into that with the beginning of summer break kids family and all that so we're back at it now and this is the first interview that i recorded while i was in my time off this one is with my actually my son's former vision therapist dr lester ifi and i dr lester as he goes by is from a nigerian family that came to the united states relatively recently he talked uh, in that opening clip about being a very promising athlete who switched into the visual medical field for you know hopefully prolonging his career more than he would have if he had been lucky enough to make it to the nfl but now he's working with a specific branch of eye medicine where they are developing athletes eyes and focus and things like that so uh you know, he's working on what could potentially be the next big breakthrough in human development in terms of sports, since the muscles are as big as they can get and everything now. The next big focus is eyes. So we talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I hope you enjoy this one with Dr. Lester, Ifi and I, good guy. And if you want to follow him on Instagram after this, check out the show notes. I'll have all the information there. All right, guys, get ready for my conversation with Dr. Lester. It's a good one. I had a lot of fun. Dr. Lester, shout out one more time. Thanks for all your help with my son. Uh, he really enjoyed his time with you, and uh, I enjoyed getting to meet you and know you as well. All right, folks, without any more, here's Dr. Lester. I was excited, you know, was ready to look at it. Hold on, hold on. Up. Brag on yourself a little bit more. What what did you play? I played an uh, outside linebacker, and uh, I ended up breaking my school record for most sacks in a game, most sacks in a career, and most sacks in a season. So uh, it was it was exciting, man. It was exciting. I was ready to play DB at the college level, whether it was D1, D2. But, um, you know, around that time, that's when I started to um, build a really strong relationship with my family ophthalmologist. And... I knew the chances of me making it to the league were slim to none, even though uh, at that point in my life, it was all or nothing when it came to me being an athlete before a student, you yeah. know, student. Um, and I decided to give up football for my family because I knew that, okay, at the end of the day, it would be more impactful and I could make a difference, you know, being an optometrist versus, you know, making it to the league. Yeah. So that was a decision that I made at the time. I did get clowned a lot by, you know, my friends, classmates, uh, teammates, even some of my coaches were said telling me that they were disappointed. But, uh, you know, that decision now, looking back at it, I don't have any regrets at all. 
But uh, um, definitely the mindset, who I am as a person, um, I definitely continue to take a lot of, uh, you know, those lessons that I've learned on the field, uh, especially as far as keeping in shape. Those were some of the things that I ended up doing when I was in Chicago as far as being a uh, fitness coach. Um, and I still continue to do it now where I have uh, fitness classes over Zoom where I do a lot of high intensity things that I learned while playing football and running track. So it's definitely a way that I continue to burn stress and uh, stay mentally healthy. And you know, I encourage everyone else to do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, well, I mean, like the worst of the pandemic is over now, but man, if people weren't exercising and I know a lot of people who are like, dude, I gained like 30 pounds over the pandemic. If you can't do anything, you can't go anywhere. You can't talk to anybody and you're not exercising. You're just going to become a wreck. I become, I haven't exercised in a couple of days and I feel it right now. Just like I get anxiety in my stomach for no reason. I'm like, I got to go for a run. That itch. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I don't necessarily want to exercise, but I want to feel better. And I know that sweating and making my heartbeat is like the first step to that. Like, man, if there's any, I would say uh, exercise for sure is definitely the healthiest dopamine fix that you can get. So I'm all, I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram reels. That only works for so long. <laughs> like, you know, like most kids from the urban area or, you know, inner city, wanted to be an athlete. And as I thought back to that, you know, during my early years of undergrad, I said, well, if I had other examples in my life of people that were professionals, whether that was a lawyer or a doctor or someone that I felt that I could relate to uh, culturally or uh, that looked like me, you know, of the same race or ethnic background, maybe that's the route that I would have chosen early on, but I didn't have. So for me, my role models were mainly, you know, in the entertainment industry when it came to either athletes or musicians, right? Mm -hmm. So to the doctor's office, whether it be, you know, my primary care physician, uh, a dentist or anything like that. If I'm thinking about it now, I probably only had one physician of color um, before I came to Chicago, right? Yeah. So when I came to Chicago and uh, started seeing patients, whether it was in the uh, pediatric clinic or, um, you know, even older patients, I started to get that, uh, you know, look of recognition being in the South Side of Chicago. Anytime they would see someone, they would say, oh, you know, you're you're uh, in training to be a doctor. You would always I would always get that look of uh, validation. So that was something that uh, stood out to me and meant a lot to me, because, again, I understood that it was something that we need more of. Right. Yeah. Coming here to Grand Rapids, even though I didn't necessarily have too many patients of color, um, the times that I did, uh, I would always see the look of almost, you know, shock or astonishment on that child's face when they were like, wait, he's the doctor. You know, yeah. so I love it that way. And uh, it's definitely something that needs to continue to be worked on and uh, people need to continue to advocate for it. But um, I think that by having, you know, those uncomfortable conversations, that's going to be one of the ways that we can address the issue. So, yeah. I don't, you know, it's funny. You said that look of recognition, like uh, my, uh, my buddy, Mike is a comedian and uh, he says that, yeah, whenever I'm in a, in a spot and like, I see one other black guy and it's just me and him at some point in the, in the night, I'm going to walk up to that guy and go, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> exactly yep yep i've gotten double takes uh head nods fist bumps yeah even even you know uh it surprised me one of my first patients that i actually had um graduate or finish a vision therapy program um white woman who um actually acknowledged it she said you know i want to thank you because you're the first physician of color that my daughter has had and we don't have a lot of a lot of that here so for her to get that at such a young age she was appreciative of it and uh, she recognized it on her own without me even having to mention that. So that yeah. caught me up sure. But uh, yeah, people definitely see it and appreciate it. Yeah. Which is just makes it that much more tragic that you're leaving Grand Rapids. <laughs> <laughs>
You planted some seeds, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Since you're still kind of in like the early middle phase of your like, you know, full doctor career, mm-hmm. um, well, I guess still pretty early. What what do you uh, see for yourself in that, you know, five to 10 to 15 years? Do you want to have your own practice? Do you want to be living off the coast somewhere? What <laughs> what's your what's your big vision? So one of the reasons that I'm actually going to D.C., I'm going to continue working as a developmental optometrist. But one of the things that I want to specialize in is sports vision. Mm. So a lot of the things we talked about when it comes to, you know, eye tracking, depth perception, things that, you know, professional athletes and even athletes in general just tend to uh, do better than a general population. Uh, I want to specialize in that area. So when it comes to, let's say, working with a kid who's in elementary school, uh, you know, we obviously want him to be performing at his grade or his age level. When it comes to someone who's an athlete, they need to be able to go above and beyond that, right? Just yeah. uh, the efficiency of how well they're able to process things when it comes to using their eyes. So that's an area that uh, I'm actually having an opportunity to lead and help expand in the practice that I'm going to in D.C. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, down the line, 10, 15 years from now, I'll definitely have had, uh, you know, a great experience and um, just some major success stories of athletes, whether it be high school, college, and even in the professionals that will be able to brag and say that uh, Dr. Lusty and I had, had a chance to work with them. So that's my goal. That's pretty cool. I saw recently a video of, um, I think it was a Formula One driver and a wide receiver from the NFL. and yeah. The the race car driver was running the wide receiver through reaction drills, and like <laughs> they were just having him like uh, put their hands over the other guy's hand, and when he lets go of a ball, reach under and grab it. Yeah. And it was amazing how much faster the race car driver was than the wide receiver. I would have thought they would have been pretty close, but yeah. like it looked like a kid versus an adult. Like when you looked at the two of them. So is it? Would it be doing stuff like that, but training the eye specifically? Exactly. Right, right. So, um, you know, the example that you're using right now would be reaction time. You know, obviously you have to be able, in order for you to grab or to react to something, you have to be able to process what it is that you're saying. So that would be a part of it. Um, Another area, too, would be uh, making sure that that athlete is calm under pressure. Uh, Because, you know, a lot of times when people uh, are stressed, um, they always go into that fight or flight mode where they start to have tunnel vision, which, again, would be is great but if you're talking about an athlete let's say if it's someone who's playing a ball sport they need to be able to see the entire field right Mm -hmm. so scenarios where they're uncomfortable visually maybe they're having to multitask and we want them to still be able to perform at a high level while they're doing that uh, multitasking Hmm. that's interesting i because you know people talk about what is the next level of sports uh they've figured out all the ways to enhance the body you know muscle wise that they possibly can uh within within reasonable limits uh so i guess the next thing might be the eyes start bringing in guys like you into the clubhouse and seeing if they can boost the team batting average or if they can uh increase the offensive lineman or defensive lineman reaction time or stuff like that definitely definitely and there's even a couple of uh professional sports teams that are using utilizing vision therapy and uh you know behavioral optometrists now I know one example that I can think of at the top of my head is uh, Larry Fitzgerald. His, I believe it was his uh, grandfather, maybe it was his great uncle, who was actually a behavioral optometrist. And uh, he actually went to vision therapy for behavioral reasons. 
but there's a lot of stuff that he excels at now that he attributes to vision therapy just because of uh, what he was able to develop early on. Yeah. And Larry Fitzgerald, man, if anybody doesn't know because they didn't get a chance to really watch him play a lot, go YouTube Larry Fitzgerald. That guy has, I think, still has the record for like the highest um, or the lowest drop percentage like in NFL history. Like something like out of thousands of passes, he's dropped like a half dozen. (laughs) Insane. The guy has just freakish hand-eye coordination. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, like I mentioned earlier with my sports background, so it all comes uh, to be a complete 360 circle. So, yeah. Yeah. Incorporate. That's cool. uh, So, by, by actually stepping out of the cleats, and into the office shoes. <laughs> You've extended your career in sports. Hey, you know what? I'm going to start using that. I like that. I like that. I love it. I love it. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. And it really helps too with, you know, the whole point of this show is really to try to talk to people uh, who would inspire uh, young people or just people, you know, in their 30s, 40s or wherever that wanted to do something whatever point in time it is in your life, if you want to do something, really follow it because, you know, it's very cliche and a lot of people have said it. If you follow something without a a high level of, you know, expectation, it just has to be this certain way, you'll get to that place. It might not be, you know, the avenue you thought you were going to get there or it might not be the position you thought you were going to hold, but you'll get to that place. That's, you know, kind of a, long roundabout magical way of getting back into professional sports through another passion that people are like, well, you can't leave sports for that thing. Dumb Lester. (laughs) Who's dumb now? (laughs) People calling you doctor and shit. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like to flex. I don't like to flex, but uh, yeah, like I said, I don't have, I don't have any regrets, any regrets at all. So uh, I'll definitely, you know, take, you know, my sacrifice for my family versus, uh, you know, personal goals that would have been selfish for me to give up or to pursue. How did you get into the the visual <laughs> uh, medical sciences? Yeah, man. Um, a product of Nigerian immigrants, both my parents being from Nigeria, and we have a family history of eye disease with glaucoma. So oh. my father and uh, two of his brothers actually went blind from glaucoma. Oh my gosh. So getting screened for it. My mom actually has it as well. So um, just the family history of it has actually gotten me really interested in the eyes at a young age. Huh. It was through my you know relationship that I had with my family ophthalmologist that I got interested in optometry. So after doing that, I think it was about my first year in optometry school. I was having really bad headaches. Um, I was unable to study and I actually wasn't doing well, you know, academically. And I had an eye exam and they were saying, oh, you know, do you have a lot of headaches, eye strain, double vision, you know, things that are related to how well you can use your eyes together as a team. And I thought back to it and I said, yeah, you know, I'm always having headaches. My eyes are never comfortable after, you know, going to lecture all day and even having to study hours on end. Um, and they were able to diagnose me with a binocular vision disorder. So after learning about that myself, having gone through vision therapy, it was uh, pretty much my calling where I knew that there were other kids and other people that were struggling with the same issues, similar issues. And I wanted yeah. to give back and pay. So. Huh, that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll say this in the intro, too, but um, 
I'll I'll mention it now just because it's kind of a funny story. We met because you were treating my son, and um, I I had mentioned on a social media post that I was going to interview somebody that I threatened with physical violence. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, without getting into it too much, I'll just say that I was like an overzealous parent who was like, "Hey man, are you guys doing everything you possibly can for my kid?" And you were like, "Uh, yeah." And then I started getting kind of hostile. I was like, sorry, man. You're like, no, it's cool. I wasn't afraid of you. <laughs> no, it, it's funny, too, because, uh, you know, we had that conversation about me being, you know, from the East Coast. Um, I grew up right outside of New York or in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, coming to the Midwest, it has definitely more of a Southern feel, you know, where people are definitely much friendlier and approachable compared to where I'm from. Uh, but definitely not as direct as what I'm used to. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we were having that conversation, when you were saying that, uh, you know, things might have gotten a little hostile or, uh, you know, you were apologizing for coming off as aggressive. It didn't bother me at all because that's what I was used to. But, um, yeah. you know, I understood where you were coming from. So, yeah. No issues outside at all. Yeah. With my military background, it's always been very like, you just tell somebody exactly what you're thinking, let them feel how they're going to feel about it, but get to the bottom of whatever it is. You know what I mean? Without, without any BS, just get it out there. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, yeah. I, I just, from that moment on, I was like, I know I like this guy now. And I was like, Hey man, sorry if I was like getting kind of, kind of intimidating or, like, Oh, you did not intimidate me. I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> All right. Well, I want really want to talk to you about, um, kind of what you do as a vision therapist and, you know, specifically, I guess what I've seen you do with my kid who has amblyopia for anybody who doesn't know, that's like a lazy eye that drifts to the outside of the center vision, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a, probably a really stupid way to explain it from a medical perspective. But for years, decades, I don't know how long people have been commonly saying, oh, just put a patch over his good eye and it'll force his bad eye to adjust. And we even went to an eye doctor that was like, well, you can do that. And we came back and we're like, we really don't like this. Is there something else we can do? I'm like, well, there is. Um, but, you know, it's kind of expensive. We're like, well, if it's better than patching, there's a ton of tools that you guys use and a bunch of creative methods you use to like, quote unquote, trick the eye into working or, you know, whatever. Um, well, I guess just use my kid as an example. How do you guys examine somebody and like figure out, oh, okay, this is what this kid needs. This kid needs to be doing this VR thing and this eye tracking thing on a computer. Um, cause I'm sure every kid's different. So in my kid's instance, what, how do you look at somebody and go, well, this is what's wrong and this is what we're going to do versus just patching their eye. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, definitely my role as a behavioral optometrist, we're always looking at how vision influences behavior. So yeah. we're looking at things on how well someone can see. So a lot of times when people think of optometrists, they're just saying, oh, well, you know, if I get glasses or contacts, I'll be able to see 2020. That'll be the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, so it's much more than that when it comes to vision therapy and behavioral optometry. So one, we're looking at eyesight. Are you able to be corrected to 2020 with glasses or contacts? In the case of, uh, you know, your son, he has amblyopia. So even mm -hmm. with glasses or contacts wearing his best correction, he's not able to see 2020. So there's different methods and things that we can do in therapy to um, let's say inhibit or decrease the amount of vision in his better seeing eye so that his not so seeing, his not well seeing eye is going to be able to get that visual input and uh, kind of rival his better seeing eye while it's blurred. 
Um, and then one of the things too that uh, we focus on in developmental optometry, you know, we're looking at how well the eyes are taping together, uh, whether or not you're using both eyes to focus on a target, um, your ability to track a movement a moving object, as well as um, going from one stationary point to the next. So these are all things that we're talking about that uh, kids are definitely going to be learning at a young age and people take for granted. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's say uh, if I have trouble when it comes to tracking or if I have trouble when it comes to, um, you know, organizing chaos or clutter, uh, if I'm reading, I'm not going to be comfortable. So you have a lot of kids that are misdiagnosed uh, with ADHD and, and, you know, other behavioral and attention disorders and visually they're just not comfortable. So of course, if you try to sit them in one spot for a period, an extended period of time, whether it be school, after school while doing homework, after they're fatigued and they have no idea what's going on with their eyes or how to control that, they're going to be severely uncomfortable. So it's my job to uh, not only understand that process, but then put myself in the patient's shoes and say, if they're struggling when it comes to eye teaming, let's say it's their depth perception or uh, just how well they can track an object, or like I said, jump from one spot to the other, um, coming up with different activities in a way to make it fun and interesting and to uh, put that patient's awareness on how to gain control when it comes to uh, their weak areas. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the stuff you guys do in there is fun too. Like, actually, I, skipping over some of the fun stuff, I just have to ask you because I didn't ask you in the office. You've got mm-hmm. this one thing that looks like kind of like the shape of a Toblerone bar. Like it's a long triangular thing and it's got different like settings and you put that in front of somebody's eye, like up and down. What What is that prismy thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's called the prison bar. So anyone who knows, you know, the band uh, Pink Floyd. Yeah. They have the prison that's bending light with the different colors of the rainbow. That's literally what it is. So what that does is um, there's one particular procedure called a cover test where if someone has a misaligned eye, we can use that to measure the amount that someone's eyes deviated or misaligned. And then what you can also do if someone has the ability to use both eyes together, we can... Um, cause their eyes to either cross or relax or going in the opposite direction, which we call diverging in order to measure how well or how much they're able to cross or relax their eyes. It just yeah. gives you know, a measurement that we can physically record. Okay. Yeah. Cause I see you doing that stuff and I'm so inquisitive, which is part of the reason why I have a podcast, but I'm like, at the same time, I'm like, man, I, I know how much I hate it when I'm doing something. Someone goes, what are you doing? What are you doing right there? So I tried not to do that. Ah, no worries, no worries. I would have answered the question if you would have asked during the time anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost oh. like uh, when I'm in the exam chair and you know someone's observing. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. Just trying to get that person's eyes function. Hold this in front of your eye. Look through this weird thing. Now look through this weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask you too is that because you have been so trained to look at someone's eyes to see if they're like tracking at the same time, do you ever just go to like? a restaurant or somewhere and you talk to a stranger and you see something in their eyes not right and you just want to be like ooh i could help you with that yeah yeah there's been um <laughs> there's been a couple of times it was funny because uh i actually ended up referring this patient's daughter you know to the to the practice that i work at where um the nurse at my doctor's appointment she had uh, strabismus which is um an eye misalignment and for me obviously as an optometrist that's the first thing that i noticed as soon as i looked at her and I had to almost, uh, you know, constantly remind myself not to look at her drifting eye. Yeah. So, <laughs> so then um, when she asked me what I do for a living and I told her that I was an optometrist and, you know, explained a little bit about what I do. She was like, oh, you know, yeah, you know, I did a little bit of that when I was a kid and I actually have an eye turn. And I mentioned to her, yeah, I noticed it, but, you know, I didn't want to be rude or, you know, make you uncomfortable by pointing out the obvious. And uh, she told me that her child was having some issues as well. 
Um, and we ended up seeing her as a patient and she did, she did really well in therapy and is excelling now. What was your experience like, I guess, because uh, you're not the first person I've talked to who had uh, parents that came from another country. And I have grandparents that came from another country. So I hear stories about like, you know, what it's like to be an immigrant in New York in 1960 when both of your parents are Italian or um, what it was like to grow up in East Kentwood with Jamaican parents. But tell me what it was like growing up in uh, in Connecticut with uh, where, where were your parents from again? Uh, Nigeria. Nigeria. OK. Yeah, it was a. Uh you know, definitely an interesting upbringing and experience because, um, you know, obviously growing up um, with parents that are of immigrants, that are immigrants, um, having the Nigerian culture, but at the same time also identifying as African-American. Uh, so there was a huge, you know, dichotomy where there were certain things that, you know, I wasn't able to get away with at home. But then again, you know, growing up on the neighborhood or going around the block, I had to adjust culturally there too. So um, it was almost as if I had two identities, one inside the house or one outside the house, but um, not at all pretty much blended together and uh, definitely had some interesting experiences. And then even growing up, um, one in an urban setting and then moving to a suburban setting too, was all trying to figure out how to navigate and, you know, with, know how to use and uh, code switch and, uh, you know, use with side of a blester um, given the, the setting. When did your parents come over here and what, uh, what was the, what was the impetus for them to, to come in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad came in the, mid eighties. And he came here strictly for school. I know his plan was originally to go back home and uh, start a family business. Mm. Ended up staying after he came here for school. And then my mom came here about two years before I was born. Um, and pretty much they stayed because they knew that they had uh, more of a, a better opportunity, you know, for them to have kids and raise kids in the U S compared to going back home. Yeah. That's pretty much how my sister and myself came to be, man, they came over in the eighties. When, what year were you born? 92. 92. Okay. So I don't have quite a full decade on you. I was born in 1983. Um, but yeah, man, that's that's super recent then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I cuz my yeah, my last my last living Italian um descendant died probably 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. But yeah, man, you <laughs> you're very close to uh to that culture then. Right, right. Even uh <laughs> You know, a lot of my dad's friends and coworkers would always joke with them every time uh, they would see coming to America because pretty much that was his story. Um, <laughs> so when he came to the U.S., he spent some time in Louisiana. Then he came up north and uh, spent some time in Boston. And he told me that his first time in Boston, the first trip that he made to the grocery store, which was uh, Kmart, I guess, at the time, he uh, <laughs> bought a winter jacket. So first time seeing snow, not knowing what to expect. Um, anytime he was in, you know, overseas in Nigeria, they would always describe America as the land of milk and honey, obviously coming here, it was a totally different experience being up North and a predominantly white area. So, um, yeah, he's at, he has a lot of experiences too. So that must've been a crazy culture shift to go from Nigeria to, you said, Louisiana, Louisiana is a culture shift. Just going from any of the other States to Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Tell me more about, uh, where you were born, where you were brought up then? So I was born in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, um, raised in Manchester, Connecticut, which is in the same county as Hartford. Um, it was a nice little community, uh, definitely diverse uh, compared to a lot of other areas in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, went to the University of Connecticut for undergrad. And honestly, if it wasn't for optometry, I would have spent my entire life and probably would have returned home to Connecticut. 
Um, it's just one of those things where if you don't have any exposure outside of that area, a lot of yeah. people just stay there. Um, so I'm definitely fortunate, you know, the fact that I was able to go to optometry school in Chicago. After that, go into residency here in Grand Rapids and uh, just getting some exposure so I can see what else was out there. All right. You're almost out of Grand Rapids. So be honest. What do you, <laughs> what do you think of Grand Rapids in the, in the grand scheme of the places that you've been? Because you, from Connecticut, went to school in Chicago and then Grand Rapids and you're on soon to, uh, to your next place. So where yeah. does Grand Rapids fit in? It, it was definitely a culture shock because, uh, like I said, after spending four years in Chicago, uh, it was definitely diverse. You could pretty much um, see any population that you were looking for, whether it be black, white, uh, you know, Pacific Islander. It's pretty much a, a mix and a blend of everything that you can look for, restaurant-wise, uh, culture, anything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a matter of if they have a place. It's which one you're going to go to. Right. You pretty much have your choice of what you want. Uh, so definitely coming to Grand Rapids, um, that was a little bit of a culture shock to me where it wasn't as diverse. Um, yeah. People were like, dude, we just got tacos like two years ago. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, I make jokes with my coworkers, too, even when it comes to spots, you know, finding different spots to get food. You know, they say, oh, I know this great Indian spot on so-and-so. And then I'm always comparing it to Chicago. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm always going to be at a loss, even if I'm comparing it to, uh, you know, New York style pizza or New Haven pizza. Um, definitely, you know, it's missing the diversity that I'm used to, but yeah. overall I had a great time. Haven't had any negative experiences with the people that have been here. Uh, my patients and their families have treated me well. So, uh, it's definitely not somewhere that I wanted to stay long-term just because I'm looking for more diversity. Yeah. Um, and then I was actually going to be in uh, DC. So, uh, it's a bit more of uh, my vibe. Yeah. DC, different, <laughs> different makeup than GR for sure. a show about creativity and putting together a good outfit is always part of that um you've got a decent sneaker collection yeah 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 do you know how many shoes you have uh here with me in grand rapids i would say about 20 pair probably okay, have so a, but there's 20 in the traveling collection and how many in all i would say in all maybe close to 30 to 35 sneakers. And then I have a couple of dress shoes too, but uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, when did that happen? When did you start going like, man, I need one pair of shoes for every day of the month. <laughs> um, I want to say it started probably in uh middle school. Um, you know, obviously, uh, well, it's not going to be obvious, but in the black community, you know, staying fresh and uh, especially your kicks, it's um, something that people take very seriously. And, you know, my parents, they weren't about to go spend $150 on a pair of sneakers. So what I had to actually end up doing was, um, that's how I got my first job, was uh, going around the neighborhood mowing lawns. So what I would do is collect all that money. And then, you know, a couple of times out of the year, I would go buy whatever pair of kicks it was that I wanted. And because I earned the money and I knew how much and how long it took for me to earn that money to buy the kick, the kicks that I wanted, um, I would take care of them. Yeah. Kicks from all the way back to 2012, but by looking at them and how clean I keep them, you wouldn't even know that I've uh, I've had them for over 10 or 11 years. But uh, yeah, yeah, you've got I, the different brushes and the cluts and the, all yeah. that shit, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you know, I definitely pay attention to the way that I walk when I'm wearing certain kicks versus others. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, dress good, look good, feel good. So yeah, definitely. You know, I hate to stereotype, but I do notice when I'm around um, my black friends or just 
in a area that's more black people in general, I'll get more people that'll be like, hey, man, that's a nice hat. Hey, man, nice shoes. Hey, that outfit looks good, man. Hey, oh, oh thanks. Yeah, you <laughs> detail when it comes to, you know, what you have on. So, you know, making that first impression is uh, is huge. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've never been a big sneaker guy. I've always been more of a hats and watches guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even now, like this hat, <laughs> and for anybody who's not watching the video, it's uh, trees, mountains. It's got the Colorado logo. And then inside the Colorado logo is a uh, Bigfoot. <laughs> so I don't like hats that are necessarily cool or good looking hats, but, uh, you know, I can I can put an outfit together with it. Right, right. Red shorts, blue shirt, red and blue hat. Yeah, honestly, accessories go a long way, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So if you don't have hair on the top of your head, a good hat <laughs> can be just as good as a good toupee. <laughs> hey, man, I claim it. I claim it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I used to have people say, too, like, are you trying to hide that you're going bald with all the hats? I'm like, no, I'm just I like my hair, but I like my hats, too. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's not as big of a problem for you, but I'll get sunburn if I don't put something on the top of my head. The top of my head, five minutes, ten minutes after being in the sun, starts to tingle. Jeez, oh man. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had that happen yet, but uh, yeah, I'll definitely take that advice to put sunscreen on my head just in case during the summertime. Yeah, yeah, that's what they say. The top of your head, if you're bald, the bridge of your nose, and the tops of your ears are the places that people most commonly don't sunscreen that they should. This has turned into an all-around health episode. <laughs> i imagine that as kids you and i were probably a lot alike I don't know how hyper you were, but you played sports, so you must have had a, a decent motor going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was the kind of person that I would just grab a book and start trying to like find some interesting information, or I would find something that was like a broken electronic and take it apart and see if I could figure out how to put it back together again. Just that idea of uh, figuring it out for yourself, or at least trying to, you know, it's <laughs> it's kind of a lost, uh, kind of a lost thing nowadays. There's a specialty for everything, and if something breaks, you just buy a new one. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, too, because uh, in elementary school, probably all the way to high school, you know, I used to get in trouble all the time because um, even though I was always doing well academically, I would always want to know the reason why. So, for example, let's say if I was in English class, we were learning about American literature or, you know, um, history. I'd say, why do I need to know this or how is this going to help me outside of the classroom? And if I had you know, a teacher yeah. Wasn't able to answer that question, which they I, usually can't. Exactly right, right. Or I'd be labeled as combative or something. But it's like, no, I want to know how I can apply it. Uh, but if they weren't able to answer that question, I would just, you know, tune them out, and then obviously be able to pass the class. But uh, yeah, so being able to pick up things that are tangible and things that I can actually apply. You know, I wish they would have taught me in, in uh, high school or even you know middle school how to balance a checkbook. But yet I have to learn Pythagorean theorem. You know, yeah. give me actually tangibly apply and. Uh, that's that's definitely something that uh, is a huge trait of mine. Is trying to understand why and how I can apply it. Yeah, I heard somebody talking about that just like the other day. They're like, "Why do we have to learn about like the ancient Greeks when we could be learning about like how to make money off the stock market?" You no, know? <laughs> like 
Yeah, I can't really disagree with you too much on that. You could watch like one of those after school videos and in 20 minutes, you'll know everything you need to know about the Greeks. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, learning how to like generate money from more money from just a little bit of money. That's that seems like at least as important. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I hope education uh, changes soon because just the idea that, well, you know, this is the way we do stuff isn't doesn't work for people like me and that's the same reason why we kept we had to i don't want to talk too much shit about the optometrist but we had to hound them like there's got to be something besides patching and finally they're like well there is like wait a minute why don't you start with that well you know patching that's just kind of how we've been doing it like i don't accept that no if anything give the patient the option right you know or that right let them know all that they have that are available to them and let them make the decision on their own versus you know writing it off and saying it's expensive or it's a money grab whatever you might you know use as your as your reason as to why you don't recommend vision therapy but unfortunately yeah that's the way the field is but uh i think by you know podcasts and people continuing to spread what it is that we do that a lot of people will come on board In an interview format, even though I try to keep it as conversational as possible, I don't have I don't have like a list of questions. If I think of something, I might write it down so I don't forget it. No, nah, man, you know, I, had, I had a great time. Like I said, it was my first time being on the podcast. I had no idea, no idea what to expect. So uh, I just pretty much kept it open and I uh, you know, appreciate you inviting me as a guest on your podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on and I really appreciate everything that you did with, the, with my son. Um, he really, really enjoyed his time with you as a person which uh which is good cuz he's worked with other people in other <laughs> capacities where it just was like you know you could tell the person felt awkward being around a kid that age or something you know what i mean and it was just like hmm, the work's getting done but it's not getting done joyfully exactly right right and uh, I, I think i had that conversation too you know when it comes to vision therapy where i'm saying you know if we can find a way to make an activity or an exercise more enjoyable or into a game and we still get that same objective done at the end of the day. That's all I care about, right? Yeah. It doesn't need to be, you know, structured where uh, you're sitting in a chair and doing an activity for 20 minutes, even though that's a part of it. But we still try to give you some fun and engaging activities where uh, you would actually enjoy doing that part of the therapy. So. Yeah, yeah, because there were a couple of activities where he would just start clicking through things. And we're like, dude, I know you're not doing it because you're just clicking at the same click, 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 click. He's like, this is boring. I'm like, well, all right, finish it. And then we'll tell Dr. Lester that it's boring. And then he'll see if you can do something else. <laughs> well i'll try to make it as creative as i can when he comes in person so he at least has that to look forward to so yeah yeah, yeah. uh well we really appreciate it from our our whole family and luca and he was sad too he uh <laughs> he when we left he's like can't believe i'm never going back there again and i was like well are you happy or sad and he's like both equally <laughs> <laughs> Let him know he's got that spot on my wall of fame. I still have his picture over there. So I'll definitely put Yeah, I enjoyed my time too. Yeah. And then wherever you end up, hopefully it's somewhere cool. And then I'll hopefully be traveling by there and I'll stop and be like, hey, man, (laughs) buy your lunch sometime. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Appreciate that. Oh, and um, well, here, I'll go ahead and wrap up and say goodbye. And I'll say the rest of this to you after I end record. So, Lester, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, Hang out with me here for just a second.
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Lester Ify and I for coming on and talking. Um, I love that conversation. That was great. Folks, if you want to follow him on Instagram, it's eyesdontlie.vt. And that's in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I will see you next time. Mwah.